Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Candace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Genomics and What's New in the Treatment of Oral and Head and Neck Cancers. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between many cancer organizations and many oral and head and neck cancer organizations as well. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have on the program today um, so many of you. We have um, over 415 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban and rural and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Netherlands, New Zealand, Taiwan, and Venezuela. So um, it's really a bit of a global call, actually, and it's really um, a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. Um, and our first speaker is uh, Dr. Um, Terry Day. And Dr. Day is the Wendy and Keith Wellen Endowed Chair in Head and Neck Surgery, Professor and Director, Division of Head and Neck Oncologic Surgery, Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs, Medical University of South Carolina, Hollings Cancer Center. Um, and Dr. Day is going to be addressing overview of oral and head and neck cancers, including salivary and thyroid cancer, the importance of early genomic testing before you begin treatment and during treatment, and what's new on the horizon for oral and head and neck cancers, including thyroid and salivary cancer. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Day. Yes, thank you, Carolyn. I would also like to thank Cancer Care and all of the sponsors and contributors for their commitment to the patients, the families, and friends affected by head and neck cancers. I'd also like to acknowledge one of our researchers, Rebecca Cooper, who's participated in some of the research results that I'll present in today's discussion. So I'll start with uh, just kind of a basic overview of the cancers of the head and neck that we're talking about today. And it's a wide variety of uh, cancers uh, that affect many different structures in the head and neck. And I'm going to try to simplify it for those that aren't aware of all these different types. As a head and neck surgeon, uh, I'm often involved in the initial diagnosis or the biopsy of a cancer, along with the evaluation, treatment, and rehabilitation for patients with cancers of the head and neck region. So the parts of the body that we're going to talk about within the head and neck kind of fall into some main categories. That's skin cancers, thyroid cancers, salivary gland cancers, and then the mouth, throat, and voice box cancers. So when we're talking about skin cancers first, that includes squamous cell cancer, basal cell cancer, melanoma, and Merkel cell cancers. These cancers arise on or within the skin layers and are often diagnosed with a shave or punch biopsy. The second topic is thyroid cancers, and these arise in the thyroid gland. These are generally divided into four main types, which includes the papillary thyroid cancer, follicular thyroid cancer, and those first two are referred to together as well-differentiated thyroid cancers. And then the third is medullary thyroid cancer, and the fourth 
is anaplastic thyroid cancer. These cancers are often diagnosed with a needle biopsy, often using ultrasound. The third is salivary gland cancers. And these arise in the parotid glands usually, but also can be in the submandibular or sublingual glands. And these are broken down into mucoepidermoid, adenoid cystic, adenocarcinoma, eosinophilic cell cancer, and salivary duct cancer. But there's also dozens more that can arise in this gland. And these are also diagnosed with a needle biopsy, sometimes with an ultrasound. Next, we're going to talk about the cancers that arise from the lining of the mouth, the nose, the sinuses, the throat, and the voice box. And I'm going to just break them down into two simple categories. The mouth and throat um, are the oral cavity is the mouth, and the throat is oropharynx, nasopharynx, or hypopharynx. These are typically squamous cell cancers, but they arise from the lining of the inside of the mouth and throat, not on the outside by the skin. Most of these are either caused or related to human papillomavirus, the same virus that can cause cervical cancer, or they can be caused by tobacco and alcohol use. These types of cancers are often biopsied through the mouth, or they can be biopsied with a needle biopsy of a lymph node that's lower in the neck. Next, the voice box cancers are typically cancers of the vocal cords or the voice box. These are called laryngeal cancers, and these are usually from tobacco uh, use or smoking. And these often require a biopsy going down into the throat and taking a biopsy of the vocal cords. These usually cause hoarseness in somebody. And so somebody that develops new hoarseness that lasts for several weeks needs to be evaluated. So next I'm going to talk about cancer staging. I'm going to briefly cover this. We have a lot to cover. So cancer staging, after a cancer is found, patients usually undergo the biopsy. And then they'll often undergo some type of scan or imaging, like a CAT scan, a PET scan, or MRI. And then after the scans and then a full examination of the head and neck, sometimes including a scope through the nose or mouth, the patient is given what's called a clinical stage. That means we're looking at what we have to offer at that point, the examination and the imaging, and we give it a stage, and that will be a one, two, three, or four for the clinical stage of the cancer. Usually this is based on the location, the size, the depth of the cancer, the number of lymph nodes in the neck, and knowing the clinical stage, if you're a patient with cancer or your family member gets cancer, like we're all going to confront if we haven't already, knowing the clinical stage is important because then you can decide what the best treatment is. The stage is divided in the AJCC Cancer Staging book by TN and M. T stands for tumor. That accounts for where the cancer started. N stands for lymph nodes, and that's where the cancer may have spread in the neck for, to the lymph nodes. And then the M stands for metastasis, or spread outside of the head and neck region to other parts of the body. It's quite important for patients to understand also that there is a new staging system hot off the press effective January the 1st, 2018 for head and neck cancers. Many physicians and many dentists uh, that have been in practice for a long time may not be aware of that because this was not available during their training. And so it's important if you're diagnosed with a head and neck cancer um, at this time to go back and say, wait, is my stage based on the new staging system or the old staging system? So if I was going to briefly summarize the changes in the staging system, for mouth or oral cancer, the cancer is staged by the size of the visible cancer, 
But now what has been added is the depth of the cancer going into the tissues is important. That's similar to melanoma. It has to do with how deep it's going into the tissues. So that's part of the staging system now. Now throat or oropharynx cancer, this is the one that's related to the human papillomavirus. So the HPV cancers are now separated from the non-HPV cancers of the throat, and this is the tonsil and the back of the tongue. We now have a marker called P16, which is a surrogate marker for cancers that are related to the virus in the back of the uh, tonsils or back of the tongue. Now, the lymph node staging system has also changed, and it often has to do with the number of lymph nodes and the size of the lymph nodes in the neck. And sometimes that's by examination, sometimes it's by imaging, and then sometimes we get what's called a pathologic stage, which means the lymph nodes were removed during a neck dissection, and we actually find out how many had cancer in them. So that all goes into the final staging. Now for thyroid cancer, also there was a change in 2018. The cutoff now for the advanced and early cancers for thyroid cancer it had to do with the age of the patient. So before it was a 45-year-old cutoff, and now it's 55 years old. So if you have any of these cancers or are asking about these, be sure to find out which staging system was used to stage the cancer. I'll now go into a brief summary of the treatment and care of head and neck cancers. So to simplify, I'm going to start with the skin cancers. Almost all skin cancers should be treated with surgery to remove all of the tumor cells, when all the tumor cells are removed, that's what we call clear margins. So we've gotten all the cancer out and have not left any cancer behind. And these are the edges around the cancer. Surgery might also include removal of lymph nodes that uh, the cancer may have spread to. Advanced skin cancer, stage 3 and 4 cancers, sometimes require radiation treatments after surgery. Now, most multidisciplinary skin cancer teams around the United States and around the world will include a dermatologist, a head and neck surgeon, a dermatopathologist, a radiation oncologist, and a facial plastic surgeon because when parts of the skin of the face and neck are removed, it does require some reconstruction. And melanoma and Merkel cell cancer patients often also need to see a medical oncologist in case any chemotherapy or immunotherapy is necessary. Next, I'll go on to thyroid cancers. As discussed before, the need for and the amount of surgery that is necessary for thyroid cancers has to do with some of the needle biopsying findings. And so when an ultrasound or a needle biopsy is done to remove the cells, that can determine the amount and type of cancer that may be present. Thyroid cancers are usually treated with surgery, and that can be called either a hemi or half the thyroid, hemithyroidectomy or total thyroidectomy, and possibly a neck dissection to remove lymph nodes. This may sometimes uh, be followed by radioactive iodine treatments to treat any other areas that may have any thyroid cancer. The treatment team also for thyroid cancer should include the head and neck surgeon and an endocrinologist, along with a trained cytopathologist and radiologist. I'll next go into salivary gland cancers. Salivary gland cancers, like I talked about earlier, most commonly arise in the parotid gland, which is the gland in front of the ears that people can get mumps in. Treatment for this is usually surgery, and that surgery is usually called a parotidectomy, removal of the parotid gland. 
This also can include a neck dissection to remove lymph nodes when necessary, and some patients may also require radiation after surgery. The important part of surgery of the parotid gland is preservation and identification of the facial nerve, and this requires meticulous technique because this is the nerve that moves the face and smiles for us. And most multidisciplinary salivary gland cancer teams include a head and neck surgeon, cytopathologist, radiation oncologist, and facial plastic surgeon. Also, it's important to note that anybody who gets radiation treatment and sometimes chemotherapy for any of these cancers, that dental evaluation is a priority before, during, and after the treatment to prevent side effects in the oral cavity. We'll now discuss the cancers that fall under the general term oral and head and neck cancer, which commonly refers to the cancers that affect the mouth and parts of the throat and line surfaces of the throat and voice box. To be specific, we now know the word oral means mouth and oropharyngeal is throat. And in general, if we were going to talk about treatments of the cancers of the mouth and throat and voice box, the early stage cancers, one or two, are treated with surgery or radiation, while the later stage, three and four cancers, might require combination treatments such as surgery and radiation or chemotherapy and radiation. Next, I'm going to go into the importance of early genomic testing before you begin treatment and potentially during and after treatment. The, there are some significant changes evolving and emerging now with genomic testing. This is basically genomic testing or profiling, and it's an exciting new technique and analysis of tissue specimens that can provide some genomic and molecular results that can predict not only the exact type of tumor, but also help clinicians decide on the best treatment. These can include sequencing of DNA, it can include RNA analysis, to understand more about the tumor and predict how a tumor is going to behave. Additionally, after a tumor or cancer is diagnosed with a needle biopsy, genomic studies can be performed that may predict how well the tumor will respond to treatment. That's called a prognostic indicator, and also which treatment is best. The molecular marker that we're using now for the oropharynx HPV cancers is the P16, which is the surrogate marker for HPV throat cancer. Now this marker also has specific application in needle biopsies of lymph nodes and in stains of the primary cancers of the oropharynx to know if it's related to HPV. There also is new emerging evidence that genomics can be used to diagnose and predict which cancer cells may be present in tumors of the salivary glands when the microscopic view cannot give us a definitive diagnosis. In a similar fashion, thyroid nodules can be evaluated to determine a couple of things. One would be, is it necessary to remove all or part of the thyroid gland? And also, is this a high-risk nodule in the thyroid that has a high percentage chance of becoming cancer or being cancer at that time? Finally, with recent approval of two new immunotherapies in head and neck cancer, we can now see how molecular markers have changed how we treat cancers because these new drugs are FDA approved. So and this is going to lead me to the final section, what's new on the horizon for oral and head and neck cancers, including thyroid and salivary gland cancer. 
Number one, the staging system. And I mentioned that earlier. I went through some very basics on the staging system. But if you need to know more about this, it has staged, stayed, the staging system has changed dramatically. And please visit the AJCC website to find out more. The mouth cancer now includes how deep the tumor goes, and HPV in the throat, the tonsils and base of tongue, is important in new ch changes to this staging system. Also, in HPV throat cancer, uh, the robotic surgery can now be done through the mouth without any incisions on the neck to remove a lot of the cancers of the throat that couldn't be done before robotic surgery. Now, in all head and neck cancers, a major change has developed over the last 20 years and has been further refined in the last 10 that almost all of these areas, if you have surgery for head and neck cancers, can now be reconstructed. And one major advance has been the use of free tissue transfers or basically transplants from one part of the body to another to rebuild parts of the tongue or the jawbone or the throat. Also, I can't finish without mentioning the HPV vaccine. Thankfully, it is now approved for adults up to age 45 years of age. This is a prevention vaccine. It prevents the HPV that causes oropharyngeal cancer. Hopefully, the FDA will approve this vaccine for oropharyngeal cancer because this has now surpassed cervical cancer in total number of cases in the United States. And then finally, immunotherapy. This is treatments that enhance the body's immune system to better fight cancer. For the first time in history, two new drugs are available as immunotherapeutics for head and neck cancer. And these are uh, a dramatic change and improvement for patients that uh, fall into the categories that they're indicated for. And for all the cancer patients, family members, and friends out there, a word that we're using a lot more now is called survivorship. And now, multidisciplinary teams that run survivorship clinics around the world are being placed in major centers. I'd like to encourage everybody to help expedite these evolving around the country and around the world to help cancer survivors with head and neck cancer. So it's been a privilege participating in this important teleconference. I encourage everyone to continue the efforts for multidisciplinary care that improves both the cure and quality of life for our head and neck cancer patients. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Day. That was really outstanding and just really set the stage for the entire program today. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And um, thank you so much. And I also want to acknowledge that today's program is supported by Bayer Oncology and Loxell Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, our next speaker is Dr. Christina Rodriguez. Dr. Rodriguez is Associate Professor, University of Washington School of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Rodriguez is going to be addressing specific examples of how genomic testing directs treatment decisions, including thyroid and salivary cancer, the role of precision medicine and targeted treatments, managing treatment side effects, and communicating with your healthcare team about genomic testing to identify your treatment options. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rodriguez. Thank you so much. Um, it's, it's really a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, as an introduction, I'm a medical oncologist. Um, a medical oncologist is a specialist who administers chemotherapy or similar medications, 
And a medical oncologist is an important part of what we call the multidisciplinary team that helps take care of patients with head and neck cancer. I have to say I've been in this field for 13 years since I was a fellow. And I can't tell you how excited I am about the way this field is moving. It seems as though every three or four months there's major developments being made in terms of advances um, in how we treat patients. So it, it's just a, it's it's a field that's that's being transformed um, very quickly through efforts at clinical research. Um, the way um, I like to think about um, uh, head and neck cancer is that whenever we see patients with this cancer, and I see them with my colleagues in the, in the multidisciplinary um, clinic, we have two goals in mind always. The first goal is how can we um, uh, treat the patient to have the most optimal oncologic or cancer outcome. But there is always a second and very important goal when we treat our patients, which is how can we have these patients function as well as possible on a day-to-day -day, um, level. So those two challenges to me are what has kept me in this field um, because there is nothing more gratifying um, for us as a multidisciplinary team um, than a patient who's doing well from a cancer standpoint, but also doing well, living life as fully as possible, able to eat, drink, talk, and and maintain all of those anatomic functions of the head and neck. With that in mind, um, in terms of um, uh, testing your tumor uh, and genomic treatments and how it impacts um, our day-to-day -day decision-making on treatment, I will say that there is, um, there is the, these, the, the, I like to think of genomic testing as a way of checking of testing the tumor and looking at the way genes are expressed in the tumor that may give us, um, as Dr. Day mentioned, an idea of how well your treatment may respond to specific um, uh, uh, agents or drugs. Um, for mucosal head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, uh, cancers that arise from the throat, the oral cavity, um, uh, the hypopharynx or the larynx, and even skin cancers. These are cancers that are generally result that generally result from exposure either to UV um, light from from the from excessive sun exposure, from tobacco and alcohol, or from a virus called HPV. And in these group of patients, um, the developments that have occurred um, have been less about what DNA is expressed in the tumor, but more about how our immune system responds to these tumors. So in this group, the general uh, 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 advances have been more in the immunotherapy realm, how well we can get our immune system to recognize these cancers and, um, and fight these cancers. Um, and in this situation, we have had several approvals of immunotherapy drugs, specifically for patients whose cancers have come back after um, an attempt to cure the cancer. And um, if you watch television, you'll see a lot of the advertisements for these immunotherapy drugs. These drugs target not the cancer, but immune cells called T cells. And what they do is they wake up the T cells in order to fight um, these cancers. Um, shifting gears in the non-mucosal um, 
squamous cell carcinomas, including thyroid cancer and salivary cancers. This is really where genetic testing of the tumor has resulted in drugs that are available to treat those specific genetic abnormalities. For instance, um, thyroid gland cancers generally carry genetic mutations in a pathway that tumors rely on to grow. We call this the MAP kinase pathway. And the interesting thing about thyroid cancers is that in general, if you find a mutation in a gene that is responsible for these pathways, these are mutually exclusive, meaning we don't tend to find other uh, mutations along with the mutation that we, we detect. What that tells us as physicians and clinical researchers is that if there is a mutually exclusive mutation, these are very attractive cancers to, um, for targeted agents to use an agent that specifically targets that genetic abnormality. So today, um, there are two um, oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. These are oral drugs that are approved for, the u for use in thyroid cancer that no longer responds to radioactive iodine. Um, even though these approvals are not contingent on having a genetic mutation, the development of these drugs um, occurred because of the recognition of this genetic mutation. Um, one specific example of a recent FDA approval for thyroid cancer is in anaplastic thyroid cancer. So anaplastic thyroid cancer is one of these extremely aggressive forms of thyroid cancer that have been notoriously very difficult to treat. Um, there's a, a recent study published last year showing that if your anaplastic thyroid cancer carries a BRAF V600E mutation, that's a mouthful, but that really refers to one of the most common genetic abnormalities we can find in these tumors. If the cancers carry that genetic mutation, then, they, um, they, then these patients tend to respond to a combination of two oral drugs called the brafen and trametinib that target these tumors. Um, and, and from that standpoint, that is a very good example of how we might be able to make some therapeutic decisions based on the genetic characteristics of a tumor. Since that, um, since that FDA approval, every patient with anaplastic thyroid cancer who we see in our clinic is now being tested for a BRAF V600E mutation because if they do carry that, then we have these two drugs that we can add to our therapeutic armamentarium um, to help with treatment. For salivary gland cancers, this field is also evolving. Um, we are finding um, that salivary gland cancer, as Dr. Day mentioned, is a very diverse group of very rare tumors. There's about 25 different subtypes. Um, and increasingly, as we become better at looking at abnormalities of the genes involved in these cancers, we're discovering new ones that are defined by specific genetic abnormalities. One such subtype is called a secretory carcinoma. It's a very uncommon tumor, but it is characterized by an abnormality in the gene called NTRK, N-T-R-K. These cancers, we have found, respond beautifully 
to an agent that is the, it's a pill called larotrectinib, um, and there's another uh, drug called entrectinib. These are pills similar to the tyrosine kinases uh, inhibitors that are approved for thyroid cancer. These are pills that, that specifically inhibit that uh, the, the, that abnormal gene. And for so, and for this reason, whenever we see sali new salivary gland cancers, uh, specifically something that our pathologist may tell us looks a like secretory carcinoma, we have incorporated testing for the NTREC um, uh, gene abnormality in these patients. I anticipate that as, um, as this field evolves, we are going to have more and more uh, examples of the successes that we've had in thyroid cancer and salivary gland cancer. And so I think this is an area that, that uh, we should um, stay tuned in. Um, so that um, that uh, switching now to uh, managing treatment side effects. I know it's kind of a little bit of a, uh, a diversion, but one of the I, I had alluded earlier on that um, quality of life and function is a very important priority that we have when treating patients with head and neck cancer, and so it really becomes critical to manage side effects of therapy in, in all of our patients who are undergoing treatment. Um, we all know that head and neck cancers, they occur in anatomic locations that we need for things that we take for granted every day, enjoying food, eating, drinking, singing, and, and um, maintaining this is, is, is uh, a critical uh, emphasis um, when, whenever we, we see patients. I, you know, I always tell patients when they come in through the clinic, it takes a village to get patients through treatment, um, and I represent a very, very small um, part of that team that works towards having them live their fullest life. This is where it's very important to say, that um, the multidisciplinary team and the ancillary um, services play very important roles in, in managing the side effects of therapy. At our center and in every large um, center that treats these patients, when you meet um, your doctor or your multidisciplinary team, typically what's involved is meeting our social worker or a cancer navigator who might be able to help you, uh, you know, navigate kind of the, the complexity of your appointments, um, issues related to insurance. Um, we have have um, a social worker who's involved. We typically have a nutritionist involved. Our speech and swallowing therapists, which are just amazing at um, helping patients with trying to maintain their ability to eat and drink. Our audiologists who are involved in, in helping our patients hear as well as possible. These are all important parts of the team that help um, uh, help us um, guide patients through treatment. And I will say, um, it, you know, as much as, um, especially for patients going through curative intent therapy for head and neck cancer, with these advances in um, radiation therapy techniques, surgical techniques, and with the involvement of these ancillary services, we do see more and more a, a significant population of our patients being able to return to a normal level of functioning after they've completed treatment. Um, and finally, um, I'd like to, uh, one, one um, topic that um, I was asked to address is how do you communicate with your healthcare team about genomic testing to identify your treatment options? 
I think it's key, um, you know, when you go into your um, your your meeting with your doctor, a lot of times there's a lot of emotions that go into it, a lot of anxiety. I think I always tell patients, don't be afraid to ask, you know, to ask questions about what additional testing is available, um, you know, for my tumor, or should I get a second opinion? Um, write down your questions, ask for, for your, your, your physician's um, co- uh, contact information because a lot of times you think about this when you get home and you know you're, you're in bed thinking about your appointment and you forgot to ask these questions but it's important to have an open uh, um, line of communication with your treatment team the reason is that specific testing has to do with what stage your cancer is at, what type uh, of cancer you have, what line of treatment you're at, what clinical trials are available for you. And so although there's not a cut and dried, you know, uh, in the box answer for this, it's all you, you would want to always bring this up with your your treatment team um, so that they may help guide you into, in terms of what uh, appropriate testing is um, specific, specifically tailored to your situation. So that's all I have. I think I've talked uh, for 15 minutes. Um, and I want to say thank you so much for having me. This is my first teleconference, and it's really a pleasure to be able to talk about something that um, we're ve- I'm very passionate about and is very de- near and dear to my heart. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rodriguez. That was really wonderful. And actually, this may be your first but not your last. We'll be having you come back many times, your schedule permitting. Um, very important topics that... Um, Dr. Rodriguez addressed, and also that very important piece about the communication with your healthcare team. So thank you very much, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Douglas Peterson. Dr. Peterson is Professor of Oral Medicine, Department of Oral Health and Diagnostic Sciences, School of Dental Medicine. He's Chair, Program in Head and Neck Cancer and Oral Oncology, May Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Connecticut Health Center. And Dr. Peterson is going to address guidelines for dental care, care of your mouth, teeth, and gums before and after treatment, tips to manage dry mouth, and the importance of your oncology team and your dental team communicating with each other and you. And so it's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Peterson. Thank you, Carolyn. It is uh, also my pleasure to uh, and privilege to contribute, and I really am grateful to Doctors Day and Rodriguez for providing such a thoughtful and comprehensive and clear uh, overview of this very important subject. I'd like to just address first a few overall concepts in relation to dental management and oral complications of cancer therapy for the head and neck. And and I'll simply start by saying that there are some very important and highly successful approaches for for care of your mouth that we can utilize before, during, and after completion of treatment of head and neck cancer. And, And our goal working with you and the rest of the cancer team that we've been hearing about today is to prevent or at least minimize any problems with your mouth uh, during the cancer treatment and in the years after this cancer treatment ends. And I'll be summarizing some of these approaches during my uh, 15 minutes and I'll be drawing upon some of the extensive literature that exists regarding management of the mouth problems caused by head and neck radiation uh, either given with or without chemotherapy. 
as Dr. Day had mentioned, we're covering a lot of ground today, and so I'd, I'd like to also thus mention that there are some really excellent resources available for patients and families and caregivers uh, to address these subjects. Uh, for example, the Cancer Care Portfolio is a portfolio is a very powerful uh, uh, set of publications and, and websites that uh, patients and families can use. And I'd also like to call attention to the National Cancer Institute's Physician Data Query website, PDQ. There's a, a website directed to oral complications of chemotherapy and radiation, which is customized for patients. And there's also a version for health professionals as well. So Cancer Care and the NCI uh, together have a very uh, a broad range of material that hopefully will be of use to you uh, moving forward. And then in the context of uh, the discussion today on genomics of cancer treatment, including some of the immunotherapy and targeted therapies that we've discussed today, uh, there are some really exciting new frontiers for, for some patients and their families and the oncology team. And Drs. Day and uh, Rodriguez have talked about um, the types of cancers, for example, thyroid, that may be very amenable to, to these new frontiers in cancer treatment. Now, when it comes to most of the oral cavity cancers, as we've already heard, uh, these new genomically-based and immunotherapeutically-based cancer treatments are, are not clinically indicated for most oral cavity cancers at present. But what I'm very excited about as this field continues to, to flourish, and as Dr. Rodriguez mentioned, it's a really fast pace of, of change, I'm very excited about where the field could be heading in the future uh, in relation to reducing some of the side effects in the mouth that we presently see, such as mouth sores and, and dry mouth. And so, for example, in some of the, um, the immune-based, the immunotherapy-based uh, therapies that are emerging, uh, we will see, as healthcare providers, mouth sores in patients receiving these uh, immunotherapies and, and dry mouth, um, typically in a relatively small percentage, maybe 5 to 10 percent of patients receiving these, these immunotherapies. And these um, changes in the mouth can typically be uh, effectively managed by the on oncology team in, in ways I'll talk about shortly. And I'd also like to uh, pick up on the very important point that Dr. Rodriguez was closing with related to communication and, and just really emphasize that in order for the cancer team to best help the cancer patient, including those with head and neck cancer, it is so important that any questions or concerns that you may have, uh, you bring to us so that we can give you the very best care that we possibly can in ways that you wish. Now, there's also a very important context related to dental care and the head and neck cancer patient. Um, we've talked a little bit about some of the uh, uh, ways to treat cancer, including surgery, chemotherapy, uh, head and neck radiation, and some of the genomically-based cancer treatments uh, that are also beginning to redefine the way we approach head and neck cancer in some patients as well. And what's, what's very important and also very exciting and promising is that these advances often permit the oncology team to protect more of the normal tissue than was previously possible, in, including protecting more of the, the mouth tissues, the teeth, the gums, the, the lining tissues of the mouth, and, and the salivary glands. And so these state-of-the-art treatments, while increasing cure rates, are also going a long way to reducing some of the mouth complications uh, that uh, historically we've seen. 
And as Dr. Day was mentioning about the HPV story and oral pharyngeal cancers, very interesting research is uh, ongoing related to the uh, the idea of reducing the the amount of head and neck radiation given to a patient with an HPV, say, 16 positive oral pharyngeal cancer, and potentially by reducing the amount of curative radiation, reducing the side effects that go along with that as well. So there's some very important clinical investigations now ongoing directed to reducing the amount of radiation in HPV-16 oral pharyngeal cancer and um, uh, while maintaining high cure rates, hopefully reducing side effects as well. So I'd like to now turn to some of the guidelines that we use as part of the cancer team related to dental care before, during, and after your cancer treatment. The words do become important, and they continue to be important. Uh, we can talk about dental care. As a dental provider, when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about dental meaning teeth. So we want to protect the teeth from injury of the cancer treatment. When we talk about the mouth or the oral cavity, that includes the teeth, the gums, the lining tissues of the mouth, the mucosa, and the salivary glands that we talked about earlier. Now, head and neck radiation, high-dose head and neck radiation, has been a mainstay of head and neck cancer treatment for several decades. Uh, recently, it's increasingly used with chemotherapy that's given typically on a weekly basis throughout the, the head and neck radiation uh, as well. Now, this head and neck radiation can cause temporary or even sometimes permanent changes in the mouth tissues. And so, so given the complexity of the cancer treatments and given the complexity of the oral cavity, again, the teeth and the gums, the, the mucosa, the salivary glands, it's, it's very important to have a comprehensive approach by the team so that we can ideally prevent the mouth problems if at all possible. Now, when the radiation begins, um, some of the complications, such as mouth sores, or the technical word for that would be mucositis, that typically begins about one week after the head and neck radiation begins and continues throughout the head and neck radiation for another six to seven weeks and then ends and, and resolves within two to four weeks after the radiation ends. So the mouth sores can develop. We have very good ways of managing the discomfort and making sure that the patient can have adequate nutrition. Um, and the mouth sores typically go away within a month after the radiation ends. Now, by contrast, some of the complications uh, may last for the lifetime of the patient, in other words, for many, many years. And depending on how much radiation is given and where it's given to the head and neck, there can be risk for dry mouth because of injury to the salivary glands, or there can also be a, uh, a risk for a condition of the bone, particularly the lower jawbone, called osteoradionecrosis. And in this condition, the radiation causes fibrosis and scarring um, to the bone marrow in the lower jaw, the mandible, that can reduce the ability of the lower jaw to fight off infection, say from a, a deep cavity or, or gum disease. Now, the good news of this is that the mouth sores can be managed uh, with very good pain control and nutritional support, and the dry mouth and the osteoradionecrosis can be prevented or, or minimized by working with the, the cancer team. So for the 
sore mouth, the mucositis, there's some very simple yet very, very important approaches that we can start with. Just using keeping, keeping the mouth clean and moist with non-medicated mouth rinses such as water or water and saline or salt solutions, maybe four to six times a day just rinsing and then spitting out. Um, if when the mouth becomes sore because of the effects of the radiation, we have a staging system that we can use to um, use different types of pain medications, either applied right to the sore mouth or if needed, given by pill or injection. And then if there's any concern about infection, we work carefully with the rest of the team to constantly uh, assess for infection and if an infection of the oral cavity develops, treat it with antibiotics and related approaches. Now there are there are drugs in development for the mouth sores. Um, we're optimistic that in the coming uh, years there'll be choices that we can use to actually ideally prevent these mouth sores. But for the present time, we've got very good approaches based on uh, very good clinical studies related to supporting the patient with pain, nutritional, and infection control. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some of the genomic type treatments, uh, one class of agents called immune checkpoint inhibitors um, in the immunotherapy realm, these can cause mouth sores as well. But it's, it's very interesting. The kinds of mouth sores we see with, with the immune checkpoint inhibitors um, are not typically the types of mouth sores we see that are caused by head and neck radiation. And the good news with the mouth sores caused by immune checkpoint inhibitors, again, some of the new technologies that we're using for treatment of certain cancers, is that the uh, mouth sores can be treated with uh, what we call corticosteroids. This can either be applied on right to the sore area in the mouth or the patient can take a pill that contains the corticosteroid and typically these, this approach is very effective in, in uh, reducing the, the severity of the, the mouth sores. Now with dry mouth, uh, which we can see not only caused by radiation, but also with some immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, there are different ways that we handle the effects of the dry mouth. And one approach we take is to make sure that the mouth is moist. So we have different uh, approaches to keeping the mucosa moist and clean, even something simple as water or water and salt solutions. And from a dental standpoint, we want to make sure that the teeth and the gums stay healthy because if the dry mouth occurs, that can cause infection of the, of the teeth and the gums. And so working with the dentist and the rest of the cancer team, we can typically head off or prevent any of the uh, serious complications that might otherwise occur because of the, the dry mouth. So there are a number of approaches that we can use to manage mouth sores, dry mouth, protect the teeth, protect the gums uh, uh, during and after the cancer treatment. And as Dr. Day uh, reminded us, it's very important before any of these head and neck cancer treatments begin to have a thorough dental evaluation that involves the teeth, but also the gums and the salivary glands and the mucosa so that the dentist and the patient can work with the rest of the cancer team to perform any medically necessary dental care before the cancer treatment begins and then take care of any problems that may arise during and after the cancer treatment as well, uh, the team approach. 
And so I'd like to close uh, really picking up on a point that Dr. Rodriguez was uh, highlighting relating to communication and how does the dental team work with the patient and the rest of the cancer team. Well, as we've heard, the goal is to prevent mouth problems. And so when we work with the head and neck cancer patient before the cancer treatment begins, we take that information, discuss it with the patient, the family, and the rest of the team, and decide what dentistry needs to be done before the cancer treatment in order to prevent problems down the road. And if mouth problems develop during or after the cancer treatment, then it's that communication that we really depend on uh, across the team with the patient in the center, making sure that all the questions are asked and all the problems are addressed. So this ongoing communication becomes very, very important, again, with the patient at the absolute center of the, uh, of the discussion. So as I close, I'd just like to, uh, again, emphasize that um, this is a complex treatment. It takes a very uh, uh, experienced team to work on the options and the best way to prevent and treat any problems that may arise. We have very, very good research that guides our clinical decision-making every step of the way. And as always, uh, when we work with the patient and the family and the caregivers, we want to do our absolute best to give you that cure and give you that very high functional uh, achievement that Dr. Rodriguez was talking about. So we count on the patient to express any of their questions or concerns and let us know how we can best help. So I'd like to uh, really thank uh, all of you for this opportunity to share in this very, very important discussion today and uh, certainly we'll be glad to address any questions. So I'll now turn the podium back to Carolyn. Thank you, thank you again. Thank you so much, Dr. Peterson. That was really wonderful and just so informative to everybody. And um, we do now have time for questions. I'm going to ask that um, the operators bring on both Dr. Rodriguez and Dr. Peterson um, for the Q&A. And, um, and I'm going to ask um, uh, that Candace would explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. And, um, and we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your questions, I'll explain to all of you how to get your questions answered. Okay. So, um, so Candace. Thank, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. So I have a question here, and this is for Dr. Um, Rodriguez. Um, so how can people who have had, had this is a general question to mm -hmm. answer generally, how can people who have had um, head and neck cancers reduce their risk of developing a second primary new cancer? Mm -hmm. um, great question. And um, a couple of things. I think it's becoming increasingly clear that, that the developing a second cancer um, after treatment, it really depends on the kind of cancer that you have. I think that the most important advice that we can give anybody who comes to our clinic is that if you are currently smoking or are currently exposed to, uh, you know, uh, 
either chewing tobacco or is are exposed to tobacco, then there's very good data out there suggesting that discontinuing the use of tobacco is not only good for your health in general, but is good is is very beneficial in terms of decreasing the risk of a second primary malignancy. Patients who develop head and neck cancer because of tobacco and alcohol um, can um, be at risk for a cancer, unrelated cancer, showing up in various, a different area of the upper air digestive tract. This is because the genetic changes that tobacco and alcohol uh, create uh, is not localized to where the cancer started. It pretty much involves all of the mucosa that's exposed to that, to that, um, that uh, the cancer-causing effects of tobacco and alcohol. So if there is a take-home point, tobacco, discontinuing tobacco is always going to be a good decision. Um, one thing I didn't mention as part of the multidisciplinary team is they, our tobacco cessation specialists are absolutely, they're wonderful, they're absolutely critical in helping our patients. This this is not an easy thing to do, you know. Um, it is not a sign of weakness or lack of willpower that people find it difficult to quit smoking. It is a very, very difficult habit to break. And so recognizing that you need help or could use some help is something that we always tell patients is, is an awesome thing, and we try to encourage patients to do that. With regards um, second primary cancers in patients who um, uh, uh, have um, who are concerned that their treatments can cause secondary primary cancers. There is less that we know about how to prevent that today. Um, patients who receive radiation to the head and neck can be at risk for down the line 20 or 30 years later developing second primary malignancies. And um, this was first noted um, you know, many years ago, especially in young patients and children or teenagers who receive radiation to various parts of their body for other cancers, that over a protracted period of time, the radiated area can have a risk of second malignancies. I think we're going to see a change in that phenomenon now that the uh, techniques for radiation therapy have evolved to a point where we're really able to focus our radiation treatments on the, the, the tumor or the tissue very much surrounding the tumor and spare other normal parts of um, Normal, um, normal structures uh, that don't need the radiation. So I think from that standpoint, we're going to start seeing a difference in that observation. Excellent. Thank you so much. And a question in front of our online participants for Dr. Peterson. Um, so um, how do you guide a patient in selecting a successful dry mouth product with a long list of products available? Thank you um, for the question. It's really a case-by-case -case decision. There, there are very simple ways in terms of dry mouth. I've mentioned a, a couple of times during my presentation, something as simple as carrying a bottle of water around and taking frequent sips of water. Many patients, after they try some of the uh, commercially available products, come back to just simple water-based uh, rinsing of the mouth on a frequent basis. Um, in addition to making it feel better, making the mouth feel better. This also helps keep the, the mouth tissues clean and reduces some of the risks we talked about of dental decay and gum disease over, over the years after the radiation. 
Now there are some commercially available products, some moistening agents, some comfort agents. Um, most of these are not by prescription, so it really can be just uh, trying something for a week and see if you notice some benefit. Um, in my personal experience, um, some of these work better in some patients than others, and it really becomes up to the patient to try them and, and see which approach is best. I will typically start a patient just on water rinses several times a day. If that's uh, very helpful, we'll stay with that. If the patient would like to, to try some of the over-the-counter products, uh, I'll certainly uh, defer to the patient on that. So I think the short answer is start with water rinses, see if that helps. And if you'd like to try some uh, over-the-counter products for a week or two at a time, uh, you, may, you may find a personal benefit on one of those options as well. Thank you very much. Thanks. And um, a question now for um, for Dr. Rodriguez. Um, my daughter had thyroid cancer at age 10, and it was found that she had a PTN germline mutation. Mm -hmm. They encouraged us to have molecular testing on the thyroid nodule to determine if there may be another mutation involved. Um, would that be an appropriate thing to do, um, or is yeah. it unusual to have more than one mutation in a nodule? So um, there, there are. So thyroid cancer is a very heterogeneous group of cancers, but we do know that there are um, there are a small a small population of patients who inherit their uh, their predisposition to developing a cancer, and there's very well documented. Um, uh, uh, syndromes um, that can um, give rise to thyroid cancer, along with typically a list of other potential cancers that could develop uh, over time in a person who has that genetic mutation. And so this kind of this this also leads me to to, to go back to my my ancillary and um, uh, uh, services that help us out. The genetic counselor is also a very critical part of the multidisciplinary team. Um, what is key with meeting the genetic counselor is if they identify a germline mutation that's inherited, the benefit of testing other family members is really to have some guidance in terms of how best can we follow these patients who carry this genetic mutation in order for us to either detect cancer early or prevent cancer. So I think... Um, it, it, it's a little bit outside of my expertise um, what specifically to test for, but I think meeting with a genetic counselor and following through with the recommendations for testing would be something that would not only benefit the patient but her family members because it will have some impact in, in um, future decision-making, both for the patient and their family members. Well, excellent, excellent recommendations. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that's helpful um, to our caller. Um, and I also want to say to all of you that um, you know, all the information that you gather today on this program, please take it back to treating healthcare team. And of course, the concept of the genetic counselor is so important. Um, and actually, the next time we do this program, we probably should have a genetic counselor on yeah. the program. But nevertheless, I have a idea of who that would be. <laughs> we have an. Be, uh, yeah, oh, you yeah, do. So, oh, yeah. So we. Have, I mean, I think if you go to any large center with a multidisciplinary team, they typically have specific genetic counselors, especially pediatric, large pediatric hospitals um, that are very much in tune to this issue. Uh, pediatric thyroid cancers are uncommon, but then every 
time a child develops these cancers, then it raises our our suspicion that they, there might be an inherited predisposition here, and and the value of getting that opinion is it, it can't be um, understated. Oh, excellent. So thank you very much, and thanks for the recommendation. For the next program, we will definitely include them, um, and you all hold me to it, um, to uh, to have a, um, um, a genetic counselor on the call. Thank you. And we're increasingly having them on more of our programs, so this is terrific. Thank you. Um, and, um, well, actually, and we have another question now for Dr. Um, Peterson. Um, so the question is, I have too much saliva and it's hard to swallow and talk properly. Does this happen to people who have radiation treatments? I've only heard the doctor mention dry mouth. What can I do to treat excessive saliva? Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, perspective on, on the problem of salivary-based changes and the oral cavity. Typically, what's going on there is that the radiation, again, depending, as I, as I mentioned in my, my comments, where the, where the radiation is given and how much radiation is given is what drives the extent of salivary injury. So if the radiation is anything more than maybe 2,500 sonogray uh, to the parotid gland that Dr. Day had mentioned earlier today, uh, that's when we start to see the changes associated with salivary, uh, what we call hypofunction, meaning there's less salivary output. Now, the idea of having too much saliva is not because of the radiation or even the chemotherapy that may be given with the radiation, but rather just difficulty in managing, in swallowing the, the salivary secretions. So it's really a functional aspect related to uh, managing the saliva in the mouth and trying to swallow it, and the sensation becomes too much saliva. So there's two strategies that we can begin to think about. There are actually many, but two that I'll suggest would be sometimes simply taking water and putting some sodium bicarbonate in it and rinsing uh, frequently four to six times a day for maybe a minute, swishing it and then spitting it out. That sodium bicarbonate, the baking soda, cuts through the very thick saliva and makes it a little easier, makes it a little thinner, it flows a little easier, and it's easier to swallow. So again, taking um, you know 15 ounces of water, putting a tablespoon of uh, baking soda in it, swishing for a minute and spitting out, that can help reduce the thickness of the saliva. But make sure you spit out the, the water and the baking soda. You don't want to swallow too much of that. The other approach, and it really ties to Dr. Rodriguez's comment and Dr. Day's uh, emphasis on the multidisciplinary team, the speech and swallowing experts could be very good if the radiation, for example, has compromised the swallowing function or if surgery and radiation has compromised the swallowing function. Uh, the speech and language pathologists and the swallowing experts are very good at uh, assessing the problem, uh, developing exercises to help with the swallow reflex. That's another strategy to reduce the sensation of, of too much saliva. Well, thank you. I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've just been amazing. The questions that everyone has asked is really amazing questions. And I know we could go on for another hour or two, but I realized that we did say this would be about an hour program, and so I, I want to pull this together. But I did say that if you did have questions we didn't answer, I would give you um, suggestions of where you might call um, for getting help with your with your questions. Now, we are partnering with a number of 
um, oral and head and neck organizations. And when you get your evaluation, we'll be listing all those organizations um, as a resource for you to call um, if you have questions. I also don't want to sidestep your healthcare team. I would definitely go back to your healthcare team, um, particularly if you've if one of the questions you've asked and there's kind of follow up to it and you and you realize that that you still need more help with it, go back to treating healthcare team. Some of you are being treated at major centers. Some of you may be treated at local or smaller centers as well. I always give everyone the number for the National Cancer Institute. It's 1-800-422-6237, and you'll be getting that in your evaluation as well. And there also is, they have a website, which both our, our national participants on the call in the U.S., but also international participants might like very much. It's www.cancer.gov, and again, you'll get that as another resource in your evaluation as well. And they have a live chat feature where you can post a question, and their information specialist will address your questions. So that's kind of a really nice way to get your questions answered. And, um, and lastly, I do want to mention um, something. Well, I want to mention two things. One is that I don't want anyone to leave this call feeling that you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of this community of support. We're here to help you. And that Cancer Care does provide a host of services to people, from both practical and financial assistance to counseling services, which means a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about any concerns you may have or questions you may have. Um, also, um, it also is a chance for you to actually um, join a support group, both a telephone support group or an online support group. Um, and we have lots of, we have over 138 online support groups. So you can be sure there's a group in there, either for a caregiver or for someone with oral and head and neck cancer. Uh, there's definitely a group there for you, um, for young adults, for older adults. There are groups, there's just so many different choices, and those are all listed on the website, and you'll be getting information about that as well. In addition, um, I don't want anyone to feel you're alone. You now can contact our staff at Cancer Care. They're happy to help you. The services are free. And we also have something called the Meditation App that's, um, that you're going to get a link to as well. And that many people are finding very helpful. It just came out recently uh, from Cancer Care. And it's a chance to have to listen to a relaxation exercise, to kind of hear some things that might help you just in general in your coping. And so that's kind of a nice thing that many of you um, who perhaps like apps and would like to have another app that you'd like to add um, to your, to your would like to have. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. This has been an extraordinary call, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. And since we are approaching a holiday season, I also want to wish you all a very fine holiday season, um, and I want to wish you all to take good care. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.